Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Guys, this week we had the privilege of uh, being uh, at the Advance National Conference. Advance is a planting and strengthening network that uh, Mercy Commons is part of. Uh, Vic and uh, Tanya lead a church in Toronto, just outside of Toronto, um, in Pickering. Yeah, so, it's, uh, Pickering, Ajax, all yeah, of the above. And, um, and so uh, they were here for the conference, and uh, I've known Vic a really long time, before there was gray in the hair in both of us, mm-hmm. uh, and thought it would be great for him to come and minister, and I'm going to pray for him. We're going to get going. Thank you. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for this man. I want to thank you for the way in which you have shaped him. I want to thank you for the fact that you have rescued him. I want to thank you for the fact that you have put gifts within him. But I also thank you, Father, that we are not dependent on him or his abilities, but through the Spirit of God that, um, yeah, that enlightens the Word of God. And so I pray this morning that we would be attentive. I pray that you would anoint him. And I pray that your spirit would bring change and freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, it is great to be with you. Uh, it's so nice to uh, be in another context, sing songs that we don't sing back at home, and you know, make notes. Maybe we should sing this one back at home. You know, I love that. So yeah, thank you so much for um, uh, allowing us to be a part of uh, you for even just a short little while. Um, maybe I'll share one or two little stories just so that I could connect you uh, to us. Just, you know, Nick alluded to the fact we've known each other for quite some time. My wife was taught English by uh, um, Corin, um, high school, right? Yes, so that's how far back she goes. Um, and then, you know, Nick was involved in the very tumultuous season of me loving Tanya so much and her not wanting anything to do with me. <laughs> For like close to five years, it was certainly that long. I, th- I mean, from when I met her till until I married her, it was five years. Felt, Felt way longer, absolutely. And yeah, I had, obviously, I needed to grow up quite a bit. And who better to help me grow up than put, putting Nick Saltis in my pathway, <laughs> you know? He, he definitely helped. But we, we are, I mean, we're close in age, a couple of years, but I mean, he's definitely ahead of me, as you can see, far more gray in the beard. I shaved today so I could look younger. That's pretty much the reason. I love a beard too, but today I want to be younger. So, um, but, but uh, you know, Nick would be a classic Gen Xer. And, um, you know, the, 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 the jury's out whether, as whether to I'm a millennial or not. But have you ever heard of this sort of... Um, micro subculture or this micro generation called the Xennials. Yeah, some people believe it's a myth, it doesn't exist. I think, it's, I think it's true. I mean, there's all sorts of criteria that you could look at, little self-assessment you can do to see whether you are actually fitting into this very niche uh, gener- you know, um, generation, the Xennials. But my own personal one has got to do with music. And uh, I mean, I like U2, but I feel like Gen Xers love U2. <laughs> Hey, huh? and and you know it became very apparent between you know that 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 I'm I'm a Xennial and and Nick is a Gen Xer because we, we were married maybe not even six months maybe three months and 
you know, Nick would do his customary, his uh, pastoral visit with a ton and I in our, you know, new place that we're in. And we wanted to be hospitable. We wanted to host him well. And so we put some background music on there. And um, eventually, in classic Nick fashion, Nick's like, what is this? This is making me depressed. What are we listening to? This is... And it was Coldplay. So I think that is one of the key distinguishers, like a zenial and above. We like Coldplay. I mean, the guy has a dog named Bono, all right? So there we go. Just a little, a little something to, to let you in on how long we've known each other and how different, in fact, we are to one another. But you're in the middle of Galatians, this amazing book I have been tracking with you. I've been listening to every sermon. So, you know, although I was invited to speak today, you created a lot of work for me uh, because I had to slot in. And so I hope I will do this uh, message justice, this sermon series justice. Um, last week, uh, uh, Nick did a great job. It's, I mean, he got given the text that I would have liked to have had. But, um, you know, it was all about truth-telling scandalous truth-telling. Today's title will be Scandalous Covenant. But, you know, the main point of Galatians, and this is what I love about Paul, he's really, he's a one-message man, okay? He is saying, if you want to alter the gospel, you're going to abandon the gospel. He is so passionate. The gospel is such good news. He's like, do not mess with it. And of course, this is a sermon series, very interesting, just warnings. You, You may have spoken about circumcision quite a bit and you know, use the word circumcision and party. You've put those two in the same sentence. It's bizarre. I'm just warning you, there's more of that coming in chapter five. Lots of talking about, I don't know what drives home would be like with you and your children. Mommy, daddy, what's circumcision? Because, you know, that's all you, it's often all you hear when you preach to this book. But last week, you know, Paul, um, in verse 19, he, he said that he was in agony until Christ was formed in these people. Um, and Paul is clearly not wanting the recipients of this letter to like him. He wants them, though, to become like him because he's not building a fan club, as we saw last week. He's trying to help people to follow Christ as he follows Christ. He's trying people to stay true to the gospel, the good news, and not alter it because to alter it would be to abandon it. And so he's like, please, I want you to become like Jesus. I want you to have faith in Jesus. The false teachers that he's confronting, they want to glorify themselves. They're very religious. They're good at following rules and regulations. And of course, uh, if, if people like them, it helps with their confidence that they're doing this thing right. And Paul's like, look, I want to glorify Christ. I want to glorify the gospel um, until, and until Christ is formed in you, not Paul is formed in you. So that's what, what happened. So that, that was kind of last week. Um, and he would rather, as I said, hold out the gospel than receive praise from people. Uh, because he was, he's freed from his ability, his need to receive praise from people. He says, the gospel is so good that I'm accepted and loved and justified. I'm in God's family, apart from how I behave and what I do. That's, that's how scandalously good the gospel is. Um, and so he's not trying to, um, he's, not, he's not wanting them to like him. And the next few verses that we're going to read is going to be proof of that, okay? The stuff he's going to say is going to be scandalous to the next level, okay? So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, read with me Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to 31. I'm reading from the ESV, and I think it will be up on the screen too. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave 
was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is God's word. Tricky passage. A lot of stuff that would need to be explained for us to kind of make sense of that. So thanks again, Nick. But Paul is really masterful in his argument here. He's building another strong case for what he's been saying all along here. Religion and the gospel, two different things. Earning your salvation versus receiving it as a gift of grace, different thing. Law versus grace. He's, 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 um, he's, you know, he's building his argument uh, uh, and he's adding more bricks to the wall that he's building. And you know, I want to ask you this question, much like he's asking the Galatians this question. Are you under the law or are you over the law? What do I mean by that? You know when you're just over something? I'm just so over it, you know? What, what does that mean when we say I'm just over it? It means like I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm not going to you know, build my life. I'm not going to let this shake me. I'm not gonna, the, the, I'm not, there's no implications here anymore. I'm so over it. I'm so done with it. And Paul is saying, Galatians, are you under the law? Are you over the law? When Paul says um, don't be under the law, what he actually means is don't rely on the law for your standing with God. Don't rely on the law for your standing with God. Because he's not telling them don't obey the law. If you keep reading in Galatians and you, you, know, you hear some of the words of Jesus who fulfilled the law and said the law is summed up in, uh, in this, you know, these statements of love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, as you'll see as you continue through Galatians, and you probably have touched it already, that when we Follow the Spirit deliberately. In Galatians 5 and onwards, it says, keep in step with the Spirit. So if you follow the Spirit deliberately, you actually find yourself obeying the law accidentally. So he's not saying, like, you know, just go wild and crazy, like, you know, um, be licentious and cast off all restraint. No, but he's saying, I, want, I don't want you to rely on the law in, in, in the sense that you get your standing with God from obeying it. And so maybe we can do a little bit of an assessment here today. See where you fall into, whether you're over it or, or under it, you know, whether you rely on the law um, on purpose or whether you actually depend on the Spirit on purpose and as a result, uh, obey the law accidentally. So, you, you know, Tim Keller, this is his little assessment. He says you get four kinds of people, law obeying, law relying, Law disobeying, law relying, law disobeying, not law relying, 
and law-obeying, not law-relying. My wife said to me, I sound like an episode of Gilmore Girls, law-relying, not, not, not law-relying, not law law-relying. Okay, you know, so let's, what, is, what does all of this mean? I'm glad that landed with you, you know. There's some counseling that needs to take place in this church. Um, law-obeying, law-relying. So, you know, these are people who, who rely on the law um, because they're good at obeying it. They, at least they think so. They are following it to the T. And often they are self-righteous. You know, there's a superiority. They're quite smug. But actually, they're internally quite insecure. Because you can, you can spot a person like this because they're very sensitive to criticism. Like, oh my goodness. Because criticism means that actually their good standing, their law um, uh, obeying is brought into question. And they're often devastated when prayer is not answered because, hey, I've been living a great life. I've been following the law. Why, why, why are my prayers not answered? So there's, a, there's an internal insecurity, but externally very confident. Obeying the law and relying on the law for their good standing. Not just with God, but I guess with others too. Then there's the second category, the law disobeying, law-relying people. So they are aware of what God wants of them. There's a strong works righteousness, a work righteousness in the way that they live. Um, they, they're quite humble in one sense because they know they fall horribly short of this, but they still rely upon the law. So although they've realized, man, I, I'm not attaining to this, um, it crushes them. They, they are guilt-ridden, and, and they have a very low spiritual self-esteem. Often people like this stay on the fringes. They're like, I'm not worthy to come close. I'm not worthy to serve because I rely on the law, but I know I don't obey the law, and so I can't come close. Much like, you know, the psalm that was read during our call to worship, that sort of, I can't ascend the hill because, you know, I, I don't meet the criteria. And then thirdly, the third group of people are law disobeying, not law relying. I, I'm from Canada, and I think even here in California, perhaps this, this describes a large portion of society. These people are very secular, very relativistic, you know, they, um, they make up their own moral standards. They're like, look, I'll decide what's good and what's right. And I'm, and, and I'm going to make sure that I can at least meet those standards. So I choose a nice, attainable sense of righteousness, and, I'm, I, and I think I meet them. And they can come across as people that are quite happy, perhaps tolerant of others, but there is a self-righteousness there as well. It's maybe just a little more hidden. Because they would have to be superior to others. Their set of rules and regulations, their, their, their philosophy of life, to some extent needs to be a little better than everyone else's in order for them to feel like, hey, I'm scoring pretty high here. Even though I make up my own standards, uh, I think I am pretty good at it. You know? And I look down my nose at others whose standards I think are worse than mine and who clearly does not uh, meet them themselves. And then the last category are the law-obeying, not law-relying, which, which would be people who have obeyed the gospel, who have believed the gospel. They obey God. They understand that God is holy, and yes, we, we, you know, we are supposed to shine our light, but they, they obey God out of secure sonship or daughtership. They, as you've, you've preached through this, you know, scandalous adoption, they've been adopted by God, not on the basis of their behavior, of how well they obey, how righteous they are, but on the basis of what God has done for them. And, and, and it's a gift they received. It's not something they earned. And so there's security. They are humble people because they know, I'm a sinner. I need a grace. But they're confident people because they've been adopted. They've received this gift of grace. And their sonship and their daughtership is not connected to their law 
obeying, if you can put it that way, or their obedience to God. That's, that's what Paul is wanting his listeners to be. He wants them to be in category four. Paul is saying those who believe in Christ are actually the children of Abraham. And Abraham is, you know, code for the people who live by faith, the father of their faith. He's saying those who believe in Jesus are heirs of the promise, as he's explaining in terms of these two sons. And the Judaizers, you know, the religious crowd, the ones who are saying you have to become Jewish in a sense, you have to be circumcised, you have to rely on the law. They are saying, no, if you do those things, then you are children of Abraham. And Paul is saying, no, 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 actually... This, this is the scandal. This is, this is the offense that's coming. It's like, no, you're actually in another category altogether. And so he uses the law. And, and, and again, it's not just the Ten Commandments or the, all the additional ones, but he's referring to the Old Testament as they, they would have interpreted the first five books of the Bible as the, the law. So now he uses the law to show them He's like, you want to rely on the law? Okay, let me pull out an example from the law here. And so he talks about Abraham and his two sons. You know, I don't know how many of you are, um, have journeyed through the church all the way through Sunday school, but I do remember this one song. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons said, Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's obey. This is another Lord left. No, I don't know which one it is. Okay. You're all with me here. Okay. Yes. Paul is, before he finishes the song, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He had many sons. Let's just make sure you are one of those sons. Before you start praising the Lord, let's just check. Let's just, let's just see how things go. And so he tells the story of Ishmael and Isaac. They were born in very diff- different circumstances, and, and maybe you're here today and you don't read much of the Bible, or you, you're not a Christian, and this is what I love about the Bible. It's brutally honest. If you read this back in Genesis 12 all the way up to Genesis 21, you'll see you know, a picture of a broken family and God's grace at work in spite of that. I mean, this was 3,800 years ago for us. You know, when Paul penned this, is about 1,800 years before him. Uh, and so you know, I love that about the Scriptures. I mean, it's full of history. But it's brutally honest as well. And so here's the story. In Genesis 12, you can go check it out yourself. But God promises Abraham an heir. You're going to have a son. And actually through the son, the, not just, you know, I'm not just going to bring about a nation, but the nations of the world will be blessed through your son. Problem, problem was Abraham was pretty old at that stage. And for 10 years, no kids after that promise. So we fast forward from Genesis 12 to Genesis 16, and Sarah, his wife, then she was still called Sarai, she realized 10 years has gone by, this guy's getting old, I'm old, we need to make a plan. And so she's saying, why don't you build a family through my maidservant? And, I mean, (laughs) you know, Abram is like, this young one? I don't know what went on through him, but he's like, sure, babes, you know? And that's what happened, and, and Ishmael was born. But that wasn't God's best. That, that wasn't God fulfilling his promise. That was Abraham making it happen. That was Sarah making it happen. So in Genesis 12, chapter 21, this is now 14 years later, 24 years later probably from when the promise was made. Now Abraham's 100 and then Sarah, who was barren. That's the thing. It wasn't just old. Sarah was proper barren. 
a miracle happens and Sarah has a son. God's promise was fulfilled and Isaac was born. So that's the, that's the story that Paul goes to. And in verse 23, he sums it up where he says, The son of the slave was born through ordinary means, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. So Abraham made the mistake that he didn't wait for a supernatural action to get his son. It tells us that even when the promise was made, Sarah laughed when she heard about it. No ways, this is impossible. And instead, through human attainment and in his own effort, and Sarah's own effort in terms of making a plan, Ishmael was born. So they were not acting in faith in that moment. If they did have any faith, it was faith in themselves and their own plans, faith in the flesh, but not faith in the promise. And this is where, you know, what Paul is saying, he takes it to the next level. I call it scandalous squared, you know, the offense to just keep on offending. When he draws these, you know, he paints the picture of these two sons, and then he speaks to the listeners, the readers in Galatians. Clearly, he's not trying, them to, to, uh, trying for them to like him here. I mean, if you read this as I, I would imagine as a, a Jewish Christian, or, or someone of Jewish descent, an Israelite, you would probably go, did he, did he just say that? Like, did I, did I read correctly? Did I hear correctly? It's kind of like what life with Nick is like, I, I'm sure. <laughs> Nick, I'll stop right now. This is my last <laughs> dig, my last dig. <laughs> it's like, did he, did he just say that? Did I hear correctly? And he's using allegory to illustrate that Hagar and Ishmael the, 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 the maidservant, the slave girl and her son, actually represents the Jews. It represents the present Jerusalem that he's saying are, are in bondage. They, that, that, they are the law reliers, relying on the law for their good standing with God. And, and that was scandalous. And Isaac represents those who by faith in Jesus, now including the Gentiles, they are the true children of Abraham. And, you know, and, and I mean, when, as soon as Abraham acted in the flesh, you know, everything was a disaster. I mean, Hagar got pregnant, the concubine, you know, she and her slave child. I mean, um, although it was a, a culturally norm over there, that wasn't God's will for them. And Sarah got jealous, and Hagar got jealous, and she got cast out. And, and actually, as history goes on, you see that strife and warfare between these two descendants did continue. So for us, we, we can even make more sense of it in our present day. Because Ishmael is traditionally the father of the Arab peoples. And so Paul is saying in here that the law relies, and he uses the word Mount Sinai. They, you know, um, and, and he says it's in Arabia, verse 25 is where he says this. He says, These people, the law relies, are in fact outside of God's people. You think you're on the inside because you've been given the law. But if you rely on the law, you are in fact outside. This was so scandalous. I mean... I, I, I was trying to think of illustrations, you know, to, to, to put, uh, bring this point home. You know, I live in, in a part of Canada where there are a lot of people from the Middle East, uh, of Arab origins, and, and you know, uh, um, a lot of Muslims. And, and I tell you, 
My children go to school with them. They come home with some of the stories of what the children say. And they speak about the tension between them and the Jews. Very vocal, very open about it. So, I mean, I, I, can, I don't know what it's like here, but I can understand having lived in, in, in my part of Canada for eight years and, and so many of immigrants coming from that part of the world, the Middle East. Man, it is still tense. Maybe a less intense example is, is my accent, okay? When, when people meet my wife and I, they always go, you Australian? No. New Zealand? No. British? No. Oh, no idea. And, you know, eventually we tell them we're South African. But, I, you know, I don't blame Canadians. I mean, they play basketball and ice hockey and, uh, you know, baseball. But what they don't realize is, you, you know, to equate a South African with an Australian, a New Zealand, New Zealander or a British person, like in terms of sport rivalry, like the, the, we are enemies. So it's not the kind of mistake you want to make. I mean, they're completely oblivious of it. But I, I would imagine it's something of that going on here with Paul when he's saying, no, 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 the Gentiles are the children of Abraham and the Jews relying on the law are not. Scandalous squared is what I call it. These false teachers are proudly considering themselves to be related to Abraham by Sarah and Isaac. And he's saying, no, you legalists, you are actually spiritually descended from the slave woman, the Gentile, from the outcasts. And their heart and their approach to God is the same way Abraham's heart and approach to his promise was with Hagar. And the fruit of their lives is just more slavery. This is the language that he uses. They rely on their own ability rather than on the supernatural grace of God. And that's true. Often the most religious people can often be the furthest away from freedom because they are law reliers. They are under the law. They're not over the law in that sense, hey? And Paul says in verse 29 that the slave son actually persecutes the free, free one. He's referring to a passage there in Genesis where Ishmael actually laughed at Isaac when he was weaned. And he's using that again to connect it to saying today still the gospel is more threatening to religious people than non-religious people. That's why you are being persecuted because of your freedom. And he's begging them, don't lose it. You'll catch more of that in chapter 5 next week. Because their best deeds and their best efforts are actually useless before God in terms of being justified. You cannot earn your way to God. God has made a way for us, and it's to be received. It's not to be earned. He justifies us. We don't justify ourselves by holding up our good record of being law-obeying. And so there is this encouragement to have faith in a promise not to have faith in precepts, obeying it to the T. So this is not just a figurative reading of Hagar and Sarah, but actually he goes then to quote Isaiah 54 to show that this is actually the gospel that is in, in the Old Testament. And when he quotes Isaiah, he talks there about the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And this is a big deal, a big statement, not just, uh, you know, Hundreds of years, I think it's about 600 years before Paul when Isaiah uh, prophesied this. But it was a, a big deal even in the day when they read this. In ancient times, a woman's worth was essentially cons consisted or, or connected entirely to her ability to, to bear children. 
You know, if, if she wasn't able to bear kids, her, her life was almost useless to the tribe. Tribe, You can see Sarah and Hagar, the example there is already. She felt useless and worthless. Like, I can't bring a hair, an heir to, to, um, to my husband, and so here's, here's my maidservant. Because, they, you know, at least then the family line can continue. Now, the gospel tells us that we should not make children our life, and worth any more than we should make our career, our life and worth, our money, you know, a sense of power and to be approved, all of that stuff. Because we all desire a sense of worth and value, don't we? But earthly things, like what I've just mentioned there, they actually control and they enslave us. It's, again, if we rely on that for our justification because we're disappointed when we find them often. When we arrived at the place of money and power and approval, maybe it's even having children. We've got four kids, so I don't want to you know, diss that. But you know, once you have kids, you go, oh, okay. You know, it's, not a, it's not moonlight and roses all the way. It's hard work. It's, you, know, you, have, you, you give up your life for these little munchkins. So you know, when we, when we, our sense of worth and value is, is in such things, earthly things, we're disappointed when we find them, and we're devastated when we lose them. So we're actually never free when we rely on external things instead of relying on Jesus. And so the gospel is good news for people who struggle with things like that. You know, even in terms of this verse that we read about the, the children of the desolate, the barren one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. We attended a conference this week and there, one of the keynote speakers was Sam Alberry. Um, and he is a man who is celibate for Jesus. You know, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I mean, some of you may have read his book, Is, is God Anti-Gay? Um, he's someone who would consider himself having same-sex attraction. And he was sharing with us very vulnerably about him grieving the fact that he might not have kids, would, would not have kids at, at present state. If he's called to be celibate, this is, this is his lot in life. And he was grieving that. And he was preaching through the book of Titus. And just in the greeting, the opening few verses, Paul says, this is Titus. Now, Paul also, as we, as we believe, was a single celibate man. And Paul writes about Titus as being his true child, his true son in the faith. And, and how Sam realized, my goodness, Actually, this is a promise in the gospel that I, 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 although I'm a barren, desolate one in that sense, that I would have, and I do have spiritual children. He tells a story of him receiving Father's Day cards from people now as a single celibate man who loves Jesus, whose affection for Jesus outweighs his affection for everything else. That's, that's, the gospel is good news. And, and, and so it is with everything that you might put all of your eggs you know, in, into that basket, whether it's the career, money, another relationship, power approval. Gospel is good news for those of us who struggle with that. And so Paul quotes this prophetic word. It's like 1,200 years after Abraham, 600 years before Paul, uh, about this desolate woman or the desolate one will we'll have more kids than those of the one who has a husband. And when he uh, you know, prophesied this, Isaiah, the Jews were exiles in Babylon. They were not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was occupied. In many ways, the nation was enslaved. They, they thought their national life was over. They're never going to return home to their country. They seemed like failures, weak and helpless. And when we're in that place, it's a perfect recipe for grace. That's when the good news, Isaiah encourages the nation by looking back 1,200 years to the story of Abraham 
and Sarah. And he quotes, and he, and, he, and, he, and he alludes back to that time when actually through the old barren wife, not the young, strong, and the beautiful, fertile one, that actually the promise came through. And so he was saying to this nation, actually, we, you, you might feel like you're weak, desolate, lost, incapable of returning, but this is the recipe for grace. Actually, when we're in this place, in desperate need for God to, to be at work, because our efforts amount to nothing, that's when grace kicks in. That's that, and he refers back to that promise. And it's through Sarah that actually the... Her, through her family, Abraham believing in, you know, or, or putting his faith in the promise of a son. It's through that, that that another unlikely son was born, ultimately, nearly 2,000 years later. Born to another woman who had no expectation of being pregnant, not because she was barren, but because she was a virgin. It wasn't time yet. And the Holy Spirit promised that she would bear a son. And it is through that son, who you can trace back all the way to, to the son of Abraham, the promised son of Abraham. It's through that son that the world would be blessed. And you and I are here today, many of us, knowing we are Gentiles. We were not born in, uh, of, we were not of Jewish descent. We, weren't, we didn't receive the law the way they did. Actually, we are blessed because of that son because of God's promise that was fulfilled. And so today, you and I are encouraged through these verses to trust in the Son that God has promised, that has come. We're on the other side of the, that, that gospel fulfilled. Jesus came, he lived, he died in our place, he was resurrected, and he ascended for us. And now our means of worth our means of righteousness, our standing with God, our justification, even our fruitfulness, it comes by faith through grace in the promise that God fulfilled of sending his son. We too, like Abraham had to, trust in the promised son. We trust in the promised son. We don't trust in our, our, our following of precepts and laws. We, we trust in Jesus who fulfilled the law on our behalf, and then died in our place for us not obeying the law, and then crediting us with his righteousness, and then justifying us before a God in spite of how we live and behave. It's scandalously good. It is true. And it's after believing that, that we find ourselves actually becoming like Christ, that Paul could say, until Christ is formed in you is a reality, that we find ourselves becoming who we already are, becoming what God has made us. We are ourselves adopted then into the kingdom as sons and daughters. Isn't this good news? Isn't this that we trust in the Son? And you know, I, I know that we come to the table. You come to the table every week. And I, I, I don't want to prescribe what you need to say, but for, you know, coming to the table is a moment where you say, I trust in the Son and His work for me. I trust in the promise that God fulfilled. When I come to the table here is the body of Jesus given for me and the blood of Jesus shared for me. The New Testament says it's the blood of the new covenant. And Paul was just saying these two children represent two covenants. And we are the ones of, you know, of, we're the free children. We've been set free. 
set free from having to be under the law and buckle under that pressure to perform because if we do, do well under the law, God would love us. No, the gospel tells us that God loves us so much that he sent his son while we were enemies. Lord disobeying. He sent his son under the law, fulfilled the law perfectly. It's proof that God loves you. When you come to the table, when you, put your, when you, when you, when you stand in front of this, you, you, you realize, I am loved, so loved that he would give my life for me. But at the same time, I'm so sinful because it needed God to die in my place. So there's this humility, like, yeah, I'm a sinner, I need, I, need, I need grace. But there's this confidence, I'm so loved, he would give his life for me. And when we come to the table, it's an act of faith of us saying, I trust in the son promised, the, the son that was given to me. Back at our church, we encourage people who are far from the Lord, who maybe are law reliers, to come to, to faith around the table. We say it's only for Christians, but you can become a Christian around the table. A few weeks ago, we had someone in our church, a friend brought them, and they, you know, the friends were very serious about it because communion is a serious moment. The Bible says it should only be for Christians, and she wanted to take communion. They're like, no, 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 no. She's like, no, no, actually, I want to become a follower of Jesus. And this is an act of faith. I love how the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the high church people describe this. They say you feed in your heart. You feed on Jesus in your heart by faith when we take this. You're saying, I, he is my source. He, he, is the, he is the one that I rely on and trust in. I, I live off of him. I don't live off of what I do. I live off of what Christ has done for me. And so as we gather around the table, I, band, you can go up. Sorry, I missed my cue. <laughs> band, you can go up, but you know, uh, Nick will, will lead us in this moment. That this is a real trust in the sun, a fresh moment for all of us. And we put all that law relying aside. That sounds so much like Gilmore Girls. It was terrible. We put all that law dependency, that's better, aside. And we say, I'm over it. Because I'm actually, I'm under Jesus. That's the reality. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Vic. Before the band starts playing, um, there was something he mentioned. And I just want us to take a moment... Um, and ask ourselves the question, is am I feeling weak or desolate or lost? Because that's what forced Abraham and Sarah into that decision. Is, is, is there a weakness in me? Is there desolation? Is there lostness that I am trying to solve through other means? The challenge with Abraham and Sarah is that there were consequences to, to that decision, to deal with it on their own. And I feel like God's grace is not just here to rescue you if you're not a Jesus follower. As, as, as Vic said, you, you can simply become one by saying, I, I choose to believe in the sacrifice of the son of the promise that said by his blood, and body broken, that I can be made whole, repenting of my own desire to live my life. It's that, it's that simple. You can become a follower of Jesus this morning. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, one of the things that we do when we come back to the table is we remind ourselves in those weak, desolate, and lost moments where we have acted like Abraham and Sarah, there is still freedom and, f and forgiveness 
And God can heal those consequences, just like he did with Abraham and Sarah. So what I want to do is for us to just bask in that as, as, the, as the band plays. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to take communion together. Father, I want to thank you that we are not under the law. But that because your son came and fulfilled the law. Because your son came and shed his blood and broke his body. So that we were no longer under the law. But children of the promise. That we can stand with confidence. With hope. With security. That in those moments of weakness, in those moments of desolation and lostness, where we are waiting, and, and God, you're not acting. You said you would, but you're not. God, even if we've acted out of our own flesh or strength, you still come to rescue us. Because that's how kind you are. You still pursue us. And I want to pray, just as we... As we listen to what the band plays, I want to pray for just a fresh revelation of the power of what it means to participate with the Son of the Promise at a table of grace. The reason we celebrate this meal is we don't celebrate someone who died for us. We celebrate someone who died and was raised again and lives in us and through us. And this meal is part of the representation of that. So I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, and like Vickers said, it is pretty simple to become a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, to go to the table at the back, to the side, the front table has wine, to grab the elements and then we'll take communion as a body. We hold in our hands a representation of the broken body of Jesus. That no matter how broken we feel, no matter how much of that brokenness is our own fault and decisions, He promises, uh, he promises us wholeness. Take a need. in our hands a representation of the spilt blood of Jesus and this represents the fact that every sin that has been committed against us and every sin that we ourselves has, have committed has been forgiven we hold in our hands a representation of the purity of what it means to stand completely justified before God through grace and by faith alone Take and drink. Jesus, thank you for promise. Thank you for hope. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for your word, which feeds us. May it just continue to ruminate in our hearts and minds this week. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, guys. Coffee is going to be in the back, in the corner. Prayer is on this side. God, I think, was ministering tenderly this morning. So if you would like prayer for anything, please don't leave without that. Get your kids, come back in, hang at the back. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.